Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. As fire survivors await compensation from PG&E for wildfires sparked by their equipment, hedge funds grossed at least $2 billion by getting rid of PG&E stock they acquired under the bankruptcy deal last year. That's according to a new KQED California newsroom analysis. The hedge fund stock dump lowered PG&E's share price and is affecting fire survivors' compensation and will result in higher prices for the utility's ratepayers who already pay 80% more for power than the U.S. average. Here to get into those details with us, we have Lily Jamali, outgoing co-host and correspondent for KQED's California Report. Welcome, Lily. Hey, Alexis. Thanks for having me on. We also have John Giesman, former member of the California Energy Commission. Thanks for coming on, John. Thank you. So... Lily, I I need you to kind of explain the role that the hedge funds played in the initial bankruptcy settlement, this equity backstop. Like, what does that what does that mean? And and what what did they actually do? Yeah, so, I mean, it's a little bit complicated, but the hedge funds, um, essentially, these filings that we looked at really do tell the story of what happened. We examined hundreds of 13F filings, as, they, as they're called, um, that these hedge funds have to file with federal securities regulators every three months. And they're a snapshot in time of what the portfolios of these hedge funds look like. You can see how much stock they own in different companies. And um, what you see is that these hedge funds got really interested in PG&E after the 2017 North Bay fires. You see them you know, start really bulking up on shares and Um, When the 2018 campfire happens, that investment that they had started to make turns sour on them. Um, And what you see then is that they're basically some of these hedge funds are looking for a way to, you know, sort of what their next step is going to be. And some of them end up doubling down, tripling down really getting even more involved in PG&E um, such that they're able to exert control to a certain extent. Um, some of them end up, you know, taking over the board of the company, which of course appoints management. And um, and so this culminates in a series of settlements, including the one that we've followed the most closely here at KQED, which is the settlement in this bankruptcy between PG&E and tens of thousands of fire survivors who um, were affected by PG&E fires between 2015 and 2018. So bottom line, what we see right now is that through these filings, you can see that these hedge funds are now bailing out in the first year after the bankruptcy ended. So from June to June of this year, 
you can see that they have sold off 250 million shares. This is just a small universe of funds that we've looked at of 20 hedge funds. Um, that stock was worth $2 billion and a lot of it came to them at no cost through the term that you mentioned at the beginning, that this equity backstop, which was a guarantee that they gave the company. He said, look, you know, if nobody else wants to buy PG&E shares as PG&E is leaving bankruptcy, we will buy them at a bargain basement price, but we will be there. They didn't end up having to fulfill that guarantee. There was a market for PG&E shares, uh, but they still got this massive fee that basically no one disagrees with us when we say it is the largest equity backstop, the largest special arrangement of this kind ever in a corporate bankruptcy. So this is really interesting. You know, you we asked KQED to come on today. They declined. But you were actually able to get uh, Nora Mead Browna, who I believe was uh, chairman of the board during most of this bankruptcy time. And what she told you was everybody can hate hedge funds, but the hedge funds were the people who were there. And she said, you know, they, the fact that they didn't have to buy more stock, the fact that they didn't have to fulfill their they didn't have to be the backstop in the end. She said hedge funds get paid for taking risk, and that's what they got paid for. What have people, fire survivors and, and other people that you've talked to, Lily, what have they said to you about this, uh, this equity backstop and whether it was fair? Oh, I said – sorry, I meant to say we invited PG&E, not KQED. Obviously, we're on KQED. Go ahead, Lily. <laughs> No worries at all. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, uh, Ms. Brownell's comment is basically one of the things she said was that there just weren't a lot of takers at the, you know, lining up to be the backstop, be this essentially an insurance policy for PG&E. It's not everyone can write a $9 billion check, um, which is sort of what had to happen in order for PG&E to get out. They needed that assurance. And of course, they didn't end up needing the $9 billion check, but they needed some backup. But I think the question really becomes, was that insurance policy overly generous to the hedge funds? And what we've seen, not just by examining these 13F filings, but looking at other filings, um, you know, it's fascinating to actually look at the iterations of this equity backstop. You see several filings on the bankruptcy court docket where you see certain hedge funds exit, certain hedge funds then get involved over, you know, basically about a year. Um, and you can tell that this equity backstop arrangement is a really important uh, you know, sweetener for these hedge funds. In the very last leg of the bankruptcy, you see it uh, even though they are asked to guarantee less, initially it was a $12 billion guarantee. Ultimately, it becomes a $9 billion guarantee. So even though they're being asked to guarantee less of a purchase of stock, they end up ratcheting up the size of this equity backstop fee from $119 million to $169 million. So they're actually, you know, in the very last uh, stages of this bankruptcy, making sure that they get even more than they were originally, you know, had originally brokered. Yeah. We're talking about a recent KQED analysis finding that while fire survivors await funds, hedge funds have been cashing out billions of dollars in PG&E stock. We're joined by Lily Jamali, outgoing co-host and correspondent for KQED's California Report, and John Giesman, a former member of the California Energy Commission. And we want your questions about the status of the Fire Victims Compensation Fund. 
or if you have comments about this stock giveaway that occurred as PG&E emerged from bankruptcy protection last year, you can give us a call to 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Of course, you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. As usual, we're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions and comments to forum at kqed.org. Um, John, as a so former regulator, um, how do you look at this particular arrangement? I mean, how unusual is this? Like, do other uh, have other utilities had to make use of these kinds of equity backstops? And are the terms similar to what other places have offered? Well, utility bankruptcies themselves are extraordinarily rare. And KQED has done a pretty extraordinary job of documenting what actually happened here. But this is always part of the plan. Uh, as Bill Johnson, PG&E's former CEO, testified under oath before the Public Utilities Commission in February of 2020, before the climactic negotiations in the bankruptcy, uh, his investors, the hedge funds, were distressed asset investors. Mm-hmm. He said that in the first year, they would exit the stock And then PG&E would be heavily looking for traditional investors. That's where we are now. So this notion of getting out of the stock uh, very quickly after the bankruptcy was resolved uh, was always part of the plan. And Mm -hmm. the renegotiated uh, backstop agreement that was substantially more generous to the hedge funds, that was just part of the strategy as well. The question is, why would the state agree to something like that? That is the question. Why, why did the state agree to that? Well, I think, I think the governor uh, prioritized rescuing PG&E in its current corporate configuration. There were a number of proposals for restructuring the company. The governor, rightly or wrongly, and I think it was wrong, uh, decided that the current structure was the most prudent in terms of future public benefit. Uh, And he set about accomplishing that in his negotiation with PG&E over the terms of the bankruptcy. Mm. What did you think should happen? Well, I think the city of San Francisco's proposal uh, to municipalize its service territory, the San Jose proposal with other local jurisdictions uh, as well to form an electric co-op would have provided a coherent way to restructure the company. I think it was an open question whether the gas system should be kept tied to the electric system or whether it should be severed off. Uh, There were a variety of different proposals on the table. Preserving the status quo was perceived as most reasonable by the governor's office. And rightly or wrongly, that's what they pursued. That's what they accomplished. Lily Jamali, I want to go back to the hedge fund situation here, too. How do we know that these sales uh, actually drove down the share price? Like, how do we know that, that, that this configuration and how it's played out has actually been the thing that's been uh, weighing down the shares as opposed to other things? Yeah, it's not the only thing weighing down shares. I mean, when you, know, you see a mass sell-off, you are going to see a depressive effect uh, that, that will impact the share price, but it's, it's hardly the only um, you know, impact on PG&E's share price. We have seen this company uh, just in the last couple of weeks uh, 
be targeted with new manslaughter charges by the Shasta County District Attorney stemming from last year's Zog fire. This is a company that's caused fires over the last four years. Uh, and then we know this year, the Dixie fire, uh, the company is currently under investigation for that and has already filed um, a report with the with the CPUC, uh, state utility regulators, indicating that its equipment may have been the cause. So we're sort of waiting to see what CAL FIRE's findings are there. Yeah. There's a whole host of things that are impacting the share price. And then I think, you know, uh, John's point is well taken. You know, hedge funds are going to act a certain way, and it's well documented in our culture what their modus operandi is. You know, by and large, it's to make money. It's that simple. Um, and uh, they do tend to have a much shorter in interest and investment horizon than a lot of other entities might. Um, but the bottom line is that they did end up uh, leaving this company with a whole lot more debt than it started with. And, you know, not only did we see the debt almost double when you look at the before and after of this bankruptcy, the company's debt load continues to grow even, and actually this credit to John for pointing this out, uh, the, the company's debt has only continued to grow since it left bankruptcy last year. So when you hear, you know, all the things that this company needs to do to shore up its system to make sure it's not causing more fires, that's going to take a lot of investment. And when you hear the CEO, Patty Poppy, say it could take up to $20 billion to underground a fraction of its system, you look at that price tag and it's just sticker shock is the only you know description for it. It's just how do you fund that kind of massive capital investment when you're as indebted as PG&E currently is, which is part of the state uh, that critics would say this, this hedge fund, uh, the involvement of the hedge funds resulted in. Yeah. We're talking about a recent KQED analysis finding that while fire survivors are still awaiting any payments, hedge funds have cashed out billions of dollars in PG&E stock. And we're joined by Lily Jamali, outgoing co-host, correspondent for KQED's California Report, and John Giesman, a former member of the California Energy Commission. And we want your questions. This is a complex, big story about finance and infrastructure. Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. John Giesman, it feels like You've got this big debt bubble expanding inside PG&E. We have continuing fires. We have the need to rebuild so much of this infrastructure. Have we reached the sort of final evolution of this PG&E corporate structure, or are some of those options that you described going to come back on the table? Well, I think you need to keep your eye on what, what Lily mentioned, this proposal uh, by the CEO uh, to underground 10,000 miles of their distribution and transmission lines. Uh, there's no written plan associated with that. That's simply a verbal proposal she made in July. Uh, estimated cost 20 to $30 billion. That is a clear and undisguised effort to pump up the value of the stock going forward. As Bill Johnson predicted a year and a half ago, they are heavily looking for the traditional utility investor. And the best way to do that is to hold out that bait that our rate base is going to be expanding larger than it ever has been before. $20 billion represents about 40% of the PG&E rate base. So it's a massive potential expansion if the regulators approve it. Wow. 
And so this is, I mean, this is one of the interesting things about these kinds of utilities, right? I mean, at the end of the day, if they can get regulators to approve it, they can just squeeze more money out of ratepayers. You want your electricity, don't you? Right. It's just that basic. Yeah. You know, we have uh, Don who writes, PG&E should be a publicly owned utility. Please comment. I, you were you were gesturing to that, John. More importantly, the city of San Francisco, the city of San Jose, and a collection of smaller municipalities across PG&E service territory were proposing that uh, during the bankruptcy. Yeah. Lily, what have you heard about the possibility uh, of that again and, and whether there's enough support to get it done? Um, well, I covered that those dual efforts more closely in the beginnings of the bankruptcy. And I remember, you know, when pg e first filed, this was just a couple of weeks after the campfire, which destroyed much of the town of Paradise and a lot of surrounding communities like Concow and Megalia. Um, you know, in early 2019, the company voluntarily enters into Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. And I think a lot of entities... Uh, that were served by PG&E saw that as an opportunity. So you saw San Francisco uh, wanting to strike out on its own. They said, you know, we have the know-how to do this. We have our own PUC here. We can do it. Um, We just need the system uh, within city limits. Um, Obviously, you know, that's a pretty high density part of uh, PG&E's grid. And so it probably would have been very detrimental to PG&E's bottom line for that to have happened. and then you also have this effort by, uh, led by San Jose Mayor Sam Licardo, which I think, you know, is still on the table. Uh, I have not, you know, really researched um, in, in depth where it stands right now, but I don't think that that effort is dead. Um, and, you know, when you look at this bigger picture, um, you know, the idea of going public, it takes a long time. Look at what happened in Sacramento, for example, with SMUD, um, which did break off from PG&E. They did it, uh, I think the first proposal was in the early 20s. I think it took them about a quarter century to finally get that finalized and signed off upon by the California State Supreme Court. Um, So these things take a long time, but there is this tension always when you have an investor-owned utility where you have a public utility, you have this service that everybody needs access to, and then you have this Wall Street, um, you know, this Wall Street investor bucket, the shareholders. What's happened as a result of this bankruptcy that's so important is that fire survivors, these are 80,000 of our fellow Californians, are now 24% holders of PG&E shares. So this old line that we used to hear before the bankruptcy, oh, you know, make the shareholders pay for that. And there was always this tension between the ratepayers and the shareholders where, well, those shareholders are now a quarter p- fire survivors as a result. So it really complicates who pays for what, you know, dumping on the shareholders is no longer quite as attractive for the company's critics. And I think um, tying the fire survivors to the company's shares in the way that has been the outcome here has also created potentially a regulatory morass. And who's really, you know, uh, represents them on the board, you know, to try and make sure that their needs are, are being met? They don't have a representative on the board. And even though they have 24% of the company's shares, they actually, because of a mirror rights clause in their agreement, they actually only have 9.9% voting shares, Mm -hmm. voting rights. So they, uh, 
you know, yeah. don't have a voice that's commensurate with the number of shares that they hold. Yeah. And bottom line is, you know, back to sort of the point of this whole, what is the impact of these hedge funds having gotten involved? As they're leaving, um, you know, these fire survivors are holding the bag. And yeah. uh, unfortunately, And we'll have have to leave it there. Lily Jamali, outgoing co-host and correspondent for KQED's California Report, and also John Giesman, former member of the Energy Commission. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.